Hello, everyone, and welcome to Here's the Plan, our brand new youth-led podcast where we're working out the 10-step plan to pull ourselves out of the mess of the climate and biodiversity crises. I'm James Miller. And I'm Bella Lack. And today on the show, we're delving into the power of innovative forms of agriculture as part of our big master plan to prevent runaway climate change and biodiversity loss. Agriculture is the single biggest driver of the destruction of nature and one of the most important contributors to the climate crisis. One of the biggest challenges of the 21st century will be feeding a growing population at the same time as reducing the impact that farming has on the planet. To explore this, we interviewed Arnavaz Chatton, the Director of Sustainability for a company called Infarm. Infarm does vertical farming, and that's a new technology that proposes to address many of the environmental impacts of traditional farming. In our conversation, we dive into the potential of vertical farming, some of the challenges that it faces, and the role of these new disruptive technologies in the transition to a more sustainable food system. Enjoy it, and we'll see you at the other end for a debrief. All right, shall we kick off, just because I'm conscious of time, while I say we're going to kick off, we normally tend to start with a less serious question anyway, and we normally try and think of one that's related to the topic, and we thought something related to food and farming could be a good question, maybe, it might yield some disturbing results. What is your favourite food combination that other people might consider a bit weird? Kind of a boring answer, but an honest one is that I love salty and sour combination. I'm Persian and we make an art form of sour food that's excellent. For example, as a child, my favorite snack was sour cherries and salt. And I know I shocked my Austrian mother-in-law when I encountered some sour cherries in her garden the first time I met her and I asked for salt and she saw it's a German language issue. And she said, you're looking for sugar, right? And I said, no, I want salt. And her face was just memorable really that's my that's my favorite thing wow i have to say that at least yours has some cultural origins because one of my favorite combinations is i really like grapes and tomatoes and i like dipping them in sauce so i do grapes and hummus or grapes and do you know what horseradish sauce is absolutely austrians actually use a lot of that too it's really nice on anything but on grapes try it as soon as you're done with it oh i will try that incredible james do you have a favorite that's weird because mine involves grapes as well. And I think it's even weirder because it's also really impractical. It's grapes in a sandwich in between two slices of bread with jam. Grapes in a sandwich. You lost me at jam. I had you until the grapes on sandwich, but the jam thing, I cannot. It's the jam that you can look past. The grapes in the sandwich was fine. I just don't believe this. I just can't imagine you sitting there willingly. The texture It's going to be so soggy, the bread. This is getting weirder about a minute. This is getting weird by the minute. Maybe you should move on to what the topic of the podcast is actually actually about. Do you want to kick us off, Bella? Yeah, I think we should start at the beginning because we have so much to cover. But I'd like to start a bit more personally and know how your interest in vertical farming began. Was there a kind of revelatory moment when you realised how severe the environmental crisis was? Or was it you were interested in agriculture and then the environment and you piece them together? To be very honest, it happened by accident, at least to some extent. So I've always worked in sustainability and I've always worked in business. Mm -hmm. I know business is a big part of the problem that we are facing today, but I also know that 
a lot of the solutions are also coming from the business side. So I really do believe in business and in, in change through business. And there's basically two ways you can create that. One is making existing businesses more sustainable, create more efficiencies, changing practices that are harmful, basically making things better in existing industries, legacy industries. Another way is to create new businesses and new products that are there for their necessity, for creating more sustainability, for disrupting something that's inherently unsustainable. And this is the one I'm even more excited about. So I've been in the paper and packaging world for the first 15 years of my career. And when it was time to move on, I was looking for something that's more disruptive, that's more urgent, that's more serious. And I came across vertical farming and in-farm. And uh, I'm really excited about that because it's not about changing and optimizing and improving. It's about disrupting and it's about transforming. And that is very exciting. Fantastic. Could you explain as well for the listeners, you might be sitting at home thinking, what is wrong with agriculture as it currently exists? Why do we need to replace it with something that's totally new and totally different? Why why can't we just make those incremental improvements? Can you explain what it is that you think needs to change? Sure. So agriculture is performing a really important, essential and basic function. It's feeding people. So there, there cannot be anything more fundamental or arguably more important than that. But it's doing it at an unbelievable cost. It's causing environmental degradation in much of the world. It's not resilient. It's really vulnerable to shocks, that being the climate shock that we are seeing increasingly happening, political and societal shocks. We are seeing logistical shocks. And all of this is just um, not tenable, not, not possible to go on. And agriculture can actually be linked to a lot of the alarming environmental trends that we're seeing on a planetary level. And I love to use the planetary boundaries framework because it's one framework that very holistically links environment and human welfare. And there are three planetary boundaries out of the four that are being breached. Those three are due to agriculture. And this is very telling. This means that if we somehow manage to fix our problem with agriculture, we can hope to fix some of the other more fundamental environmental issues that's, that we're facing today. Those three are climate change, biodiversity loss, and the biogeochemical flows of nitrogen. All of this can be linked to agriculture. Uh, biodiversity and, and land is, is an obvious one. We see it all around us. Too much land has been attributed and allocated to agriculture. We fertilize far too heavily, we irrigate far too extensively, and all of this is harming the ecosystems that we so rely on. And yes, all of this could become irreversible if we don't manage to find alternative solutions that are significantly different to what we have done before. So a few months ago when I saw you speaking at Y, you talked about decoupling. When you speak about decoupling, it's almost as if we're going to remove agriculture from nature and the destruction of nature and in my mind they're inherently linked agriculture nature history of human development within nature is that something which you think can happen completely or to what extent can we do that it's a really good question uh, to be honest i don't know if we can ever do it 100 i'm not even sure it's necessary to do it 100 i just know that coupling agriculture and nature destructions is not good for 
humans and other organisms. It's just something that's becoming untenable because there's this one planet that's feeding us and housing us and supporting our livelihoods and we're actively destroying it. So this game cannot go on forever. I know it's counterintuitive to think removing nature from food, what kind of a food system is that? But with science and technology, we can actually produce food that's not relying on nature to that extent. Yeah. Not relying on sunlight, on soil, and on, on this much water and on this much fertilizer. This is something that can easily be significantly decoupled, if not 100%. And vertical farming is a really good example of how that can happen. I know that personally, I haven't heard about vertical farming until about a year or so ago. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there'll be people listening who haven't either. Could you, just before we dive into some of the ways that it can be used to, to decouple farming's impact from the natural world, could you just explain what it is for the layman? Sure. Vertical farming is basically growing food indoor in a highly controlled environment. So there is a wider umbrella called uh, Controlled Environment Agriculture, or CEA. And under CEA, you have a number of different farming practices for example, greenhouses also fit under the CA, but vertical farming is particularly important because it's a it's producing food in a fully controlled environment, and there are so many advantages to that. You're basically isolating that farming from the elements. You are creating food that's not relying on a favorable climate condition, on the natural cycles of crops on the perfect temperature and humidity out there, on very particular soil conditions, you're basically creating something that you have full control on. This also means that your food system is not so vulnerable to disease and pests. You can have uh, that controlled environment isolated from pathogens. That also means you don't need to fertilize too much. You don't need to use chemical pesticides, for example. So vertical farming, ultimately, it means you can produce food very efficiently and independently of the climate conditions outside. Do you think with a population that's going to boom within the next few decades, we'll be able to meet the whole population's calorific needs using just innovative techniques like vertical farming? So there's an interesting statistic by the Wageningen University that we need to produce more food in the next 40 years than we have produced in the past 8,000 years. Really? So this is really telling. It means our current ways of producing food is simply not going to be enough, either in quantities or in quality. Because if you talk about food security, it's not just about having food available. Um, it's also about the quantity that's available and about the nutritional quality of that. So if we want to achieve that across the world, we need a lot of different methods of farming and vertical farming could be a part of that. So the question is not whether vertical farming can replace all methods of farming today. It's a, a rather a matter of a variety of uh, farming methods out there that are going to meet the needs of the growing population where that need is, for example, in the cities, where most of that population increase is going to happen and is going to help us produce it with the quality and efficiency that we need to do it. Absolutely. And on that idea of the fact that we need to feed a growing population and produce so much more food in the coming decades than we have done throughout recent history, as you said, it's a case of we need to increase yields. If we don't increase production in the same area, 
then inevitably we're going to spill over. We're going to have to destroy more natural environments Mm -hmm. and we can't afford that. One thing that I think really interests me and one of the main appeals I see of vertical farming is that land sparing potential. The fact that we might be able to concentrate food production in a much, much smaller area than, than we have done before. Could you talk a little bit about what kind of potential vertical farming raises in that respect? Absolutely. You touch on a really important point because food at the moment is taking up too much land. So one thing is that vertical farming can create food much more efficiently. In some cases, you have multiple hundred times more yield. Sometimes you have 40, 50, 60 times more yield than conventional farming. So it's depending on the crop and on the type of vertical farming that you do. This is simply due to the fact that you can utilize that space, that land that you have available much more efficiently, not just through stacking the food, but through having yields that are not vulnerable to climate conditions. And the other advantage is that you can produce a variety of crops much more often during the years. That also helps you with that yield increase. So you have both of those advantages in vertical farming. Another, and perhaps in some areas, more important difference is that vertical farming does not need prime land. It does not need arable land. It does not need land that's rich in any feature. It it can be degraded land. It can be abandoned land. It can be a warehouse style land in the city or outside the city. So it doesn't have to be basically good quality land. And this is the main advantage. So if we can utilize any given a space in a city or anywhere else for food, that means our food doesn't have to compete with biodiversity, with city development, none of those things. You talked about disruption earlier, which is really exciting because the system we have is defunct and it's just not working. But with the advent of something new and exciting also means that we're leaving certain industries behind and certain groups of people. And I was wondering whether you see lots of resistance to vertical farming. I think vertical farming is still too small to tell whether there's going to be a lot of resistance. On the consumer side, I expected there to be actually more resistance, raising objections as to food that's not coming from a traditional source, but is coming from a high-tech environment. But interestingly, there has not really been much of that, but it's probably also soon to tell. The other important aspect is what happens to all the jobs and livelihoods that are traditionally formed around agriculture. And I think, again, this is not a concern because vertical farming is not there to replace jobs and livelihoods. It's there to become another solution that we need. As we discussed before, we'll we'll need a variety of ways of farming, variety of methods of producing food, and all of it is going to be necessary. Plus, if you consider the climate impact, you'll see that climate change and loss of biodiversity is actually going to destroy some of those sources of food production anyway. So if vertical farming has to replace them, that means it's fulfilling a need that's not otherwise being fulfilled. Plus, I think it's all about the transition, how to make that transition. And that transition does not have to leave people behind. Vertical farming can be a method that even existing farmers, traditional farmers can adopt to either complement their way of producing food or to replace it in time. This is something that can be adapted to different areas, but it is definitely creating 
a new market and is definitely creating new, higher skilled, better paid jobs for the urban farmers. Yeah, you also made a really interesting point, which is quite hard to get across to people in terms of any environmental action, which is that right now all these solutions, although it seems disruptive, they're so minimal compared to the changes that will happen down the line in 20, 30 years time if we don't latch onto these solutions. And it's hard for people to grasp that long-termism that yes, this seems big, but proportionally it's so much smaller than what will happen if we don't do anything. Exactly. Certainly. And I thought there was something else really interesting you mentioned as well, which was uh, the concept of the naturalness, for want of a better word, of, of the food that we produce. Yes. And actually, when you think about it, the way that food, that most food that we consume anyway, is produced these days is very far from natural anyway. Exactly. With the amount of fertilizer and pesticides and herbicides that are applied. But what I think is exciting about vertical farming is that you can circumnavigate that problem to an extent, can't you? You can both have that high yield that we discussed, but you can also avoid a lot of the application of herbicides and pesticides and fertilizers that have such harmful impacts. That's exactly right. This is, again, one of the key strengths of vertical farming. Because you're producing food in a highly controlled environment, you can influence everything that goes on in that production environment. You can control the temperature, the humidity, the pH levels, you can control the nutrients, you can control the lights, you can control pretty much everything. This also means you don't need to rely on a lot of chemical pesticides and a lot of fertilizers to create the yield that you need. This is really huge because as you know, disease and pests and pathogens are one of the key reasons why a lot of food is lost in the supply chain. So imagine of all the food that we produce globally, it is according to the FAO, almost a third of it is lost somewhere in the supply chain. At least 10% or so is happening right at the harvest level and pre-harvest level. A lot of it because of pests and disease. So when it happens, it directly leads to a lot of wastage and a loss of loss of livelihoods. Again, these are things that we want to remove from the food supply chain. And vertical farming, and generally CA, can significantly improve that. A subtly different point is that also having controlled environment agriculture, does it lend additional resilience to things like pathogens, like climate disasters, like shocks in, in the supply chain compared to conventional farming? Is that something that's going to become much more important in the coming decades than we perceive it to be right now? Absolutely, very much so. We are seeing this with our current food system, right? Other than the fact that our food system has such a heavy burden on our natural ecosystems, we also see that that food system is actually really fragile. It's really vulnerable. We saw it very clearly with the pandemic and with the Ukraine crisis, how much it's disrupted the food supply chain, how much it created a rise in the FAO food price index, how many shortages it created around the world. We saw the problems that it caused. And this is all because our food system is so highly globalized and so lengthy and so fragile that the smallest shock can actually disrupt it on a really significant level. Resilience is going to be probably the defining term in how we do everything in the next few decades. And we need that resilience built in our system, a supply chain that's built like that, highly globalized and highly efficient, but actually really vulnerable 
is not going to be a good method for future, especially given all these challenges that we are facing and will continue to face. So vertical farming will increase resilience in terms of the natural system, but is it shifting the burden onto the energy sector rather than being reliant on natural systems instead? To some degree, yes, because again, this is different from system to system, from crop to crop, from location to location. But let's say broadly spoken, vertical farming is energy intensive and is carbon intensive. But this doesn't have to be a barrier in vertical farming becoming a sustainable solution to producing food because there is a way to tackle that energy problem. First of all, there are technologies embedded in vertical farming that are increasingly efficient. So from LED lighting to the light efficiency in crops themselves through breeding programs and and basically improving the growing conditions. On the other hand, you have really important developments in the renewable and clean energy sector. I'm personally really excited about the future potential of small modular nuclear reactors or SMRs. So there are solutions on the horizon that are going to make that energy problem a non-problem, probably in the next 10 years, as early as that. So I don't think of that energy problem as a permanent problem of the vertical farming sector. Okay, that's really interesting to hear, because that was going to be another question of mine, actually, was the fact that vertical farming relying on outside energy at the moment, we're struggling to decarbonize as a society, is probably quite similar for vertical farming companies. I know InFarm you work for, they have a decarbonisation plan. But do you have any idea right now what the balance is between the carbon intensiveness of traditional farming versus vertical farming is? I imagine it varies a lot depending on where in the world you're looking for, for conventional farming and what crops. Sure. Very, very difficult question to answer, to be honest, because there is shockingly little research out there about the carbon footprint of uh, traditional farming. So, If you look, usually you don't have crop specific, you don't have location specific, you don't have uh, farming practice specific life cycle analyses on the carbon footprint of the food sector generally. And then on vertical farming, again, highly dependent on crop and location. So that comparison is extremely difficult. But let's say broadly spoken um, on an kind of apples with apples, I would say vertical farming has a slightly higher carbon footprint per unit of crop than traditional farming. But this is something that's, I would argue, a temporary problem. And I would also argue that it's not even the most important aspect that we need to talk about. So there is such a thing as a carbon tunnel vision. If you think of the impact of food only in terms of carbon, we'll miss out on so many issues that we need to pay attention to in parallel biodiversity and land being really important one, for example. We need to look much more holistically at these topics. But our decarbonization path on our transition to net zero, this is something that very much interests us. We are doing a lot of um, life cycle analysis on this. So when it comes to supply chain, how do we make our supply chain less carbon intensive? Because Scope one, scope two, we can actually control. We can look at becoming more efficient. We can look at, for example, buying refrigerants that are a lot less carbon intensive with a lot lower global warming potential. We can look at the energy side, making our crops more light efficient and more space efficient. We can look at 
energy sourcing and get renewable and low carbon energy as much as possible. But what do you do then in the supply chain? You are still relying on a supply chain that's broadly spoken, still embedded in fossil-based systems. So that's a much more challenging topic. And this is something that's, that we're actively working on. It's funny because usually when you talk about sustainability and agriculture, veganism comes up really quickly. And when people think about how carbon intensive agriculture is, it usually comes back to veganism and plant-based eating as well. And I want to ask you how you see those more conventional solutions working in conjunction with vertical farming. Or do you focus on vertical farming and that's your niche? Or do you look at it more holistically alongside the other solutions? Sure. It's a really good point because until very recently, we thought about, let's say, moving away from animal products generally as a society as one of the most important ways to move towards a lower carbon food system. And this is still valid. So basically, as an individual, probably the most impactful thing you can do in your life is to move away from eating meats and animal products. That's probably one of the most impactful things anyone can do in terms of their climate impact. But if you look at the trends, where the population rise is happening, where people are getting wealthier, you'll see that probably moving away from animal farming is not something that's going to happen very fast. But what's very exciting in the broader agri-tech world, something I'm very, very much optimistic about, is cellular agriculture. So we talked about vertical farming as a way to produce plants much more efficiently. I'm also excited about cellular agriculture, which is about producing food on a more cellular level than on an organism level. So you take the cell of a living uh, cow or a recently dead cow, for example, and you kind of manipulate it, you program it to produce cells that have a desirable feature, for example, muscle mass, fat mass, or for example, you can manipulate the skin to produce the type of leather that you want. It's also very promising in terms of precision fermentation. So instead of that cellular type of producing animal products, you can also use bacteria, yeast and algae to produce a whole array of organic molecules that you can then use as food or medicine. And that is really, really exciting as well. And it's attracting a lot of investment. The science and tech is improving uh, almost every day. And this is also something that even if large parts of society doesn't shift away from animal products, this can still meet that need without destroying nature. That is really exciting. Do you see then vertical farming as being one component of a really broad revolution that's going to sweep agriculture in the coming decade? Absolutely. So these disruptive methods of farming, vertical farming on the one side, precision fermentation, black cultivated meat, edible insects, you name it, you see a lot of exciting developments in agri-tech that are scaling, that are attracting investments, that are basically proving that they can be a viable solution, that they can be economically viable, that they can be uh, sustainable. That's now some of it already on the market, some of it about to go to markets, and we need all of it to help us create that transformation in food. Yeah, this is all very exciting. 
this really good quote that I come back to a lot by Mary Hegler is you can be overwhelmed by the complexity of the problem or fall in love with the creativity of the solution and hearing about agritech and all the different solutions we have is exactly what we need because so many of us know what's wrong but we need people like you to come in and say look what we can move towards look at the society we can live in in 10 20 years Sorry, it's not a question. It's just a bit of excitement. <laughs> no, I share that excitement with you, Bella, and that optimism. I'm generally an optimistic person, but I think we need a little bit more optimism and a little bit more creativity and a little bit more courage to get through the problem and get to a much better place of society. The solutions are there and we have the skill sets and we have the resources. We just need to get a bit better organized, get a bit more hopeful and get down to work. 100%. I think it's it's partly a communications problem. That's partly what Bella and I are having a go at trying to solve in our own little corner a little bit. We'll see, we'll see how we go. <laughs> I think very soon we're going to have to wrap up. But before we start to wrap up, there's one thing that we didn't touch on that I would quite like to, because I think it's really important when it comes to vertical farming. It was the fact that right now, vertical farming hasn't been able to touch a lot of these staple crops that exist, that, that feed the majority of the world's calories and unless we we start to be able to produce those staple crops using vertical farming we'll struggle to make a real dent and a real difference when it comes to the impact that farming has on the environment could you talk a little bit about why that's a problem right now and to what extent you think it's a solvable problem absolutely really good point james i'm glad you mentioned it before we wrapped up vertical farming traditionally has produced uh, crops that are well suited to that kind of growing environment. Short cycles, short plants, they are viable and they're economically viable, right? So this has meant vertical farming has largely produced salads and greens and more recently mushrooms and berries and tomatoes. But that's not what the world feeds on. And if vertical farming, no matter how good and efficient it is, produces things that are always on the edge of the place, then we cannot hope for it to become a really viable solution in the bigger picture. And the production of staple crops has always been a bit of a challenge because it can be produced technically indoor, but it's just too expensive. It takes too long, it's too expensive, and ultimately you, you reach a kind of a unit economics that are just not uh, viable, just not possible. But a combination of breeding techniques and improvements in research and science, and also much more supporting policy has made this possible. So Infarm, for example, has done very successful trials of producing wheat in the vertical farm, and the results are very exciting. So we hope to be able to commercialize it within the decades. This needs, as I said, more research, more funding, but it's definitely on the horizon. So this is something that will be a game changer. It will make vertical farming suddenly in the business of producing maize and wheat and rice instead of just salad greens. And this is definitely going to create a dent. Just to wrap up, you've given us so many solutions already, but we like to end with something really concrete. And what we ask every guest is if you could ask for one change or an action from the individual, from corporations, or companies, and then from the government, what would you say to each of those different groups? That's a tough one. For the individual, I would ask people to make more conscious choices when it comes to food. I'm not even prescribing what people should eat. I'm just saying 
when you reach out for that food on the supermarket shelf or you're cooking something for yourself, just think about think about it for a moment. Do it consciously and actively rather than passively just because it's a habit. But maybe more importantly on the individual level, uh, I know you asked for just one, but I think it's important to think about what we can do in this society in this time. I think if we have skills or interests, if you have a role to play, if you can contribute somehow to some of the challenges that we're facing, I think we should do that. From the governments, it's a simple but hard thing, and that is make policies that are rooted in evidence um, and in facts and in science, not legacy, not any of those things that all too commonly drive our policies, especially in the food sector. And from the companies, I think I would say be more bold, be more creative and channel your resources and channels your channel your skills and channel your creativity in areas that will disrupt and change and improve the way we do things as a society. Thank you so much, Anavaz. That was a really exciting conversation. I think we've both learned a lot. I'm really looking forward to sharing this with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me, James and Bella. This has been fun. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I don't know about you, James, but when I was younger, my idea of sustainable farming, agriculture was organic farming. I learned a bit about fair trade and it was this narrow vision of where farming could go. And then in the past few years, I've suddenly become aware of this patchwork of solutions. Vertical farming, I was aware of, but not in this depth. And it's exciting knowing that there are so many different avenues that we can take. It wasn't all good. And I think we need to debrief about what we learned. And I want to know what what were your initial thoughts hearing all of that? My goodness, there's so much to unpack, isn't there? Yeah, well, I think as like an overall consensus for you, I think Arnavaz's summary was clear that it's a solution that can be applied in certain situations to deliver massive benefits. And as you say, it will need to be part of a, a wider patchwork of solutions. And we can delve into what some of the other ones of those would be. But yeah, in terms of what overall I think about vertical farming, some of the major benefits that it affords in summary, I think would be that you can produce crops in a much smaller area. You need much less water to do it. You can get around the use of pesticides and, and fertilizer and herbicides and fungicides which is really important. And it can do a lot in terms of food security. So I think it has a lot of very positive features that are really exciting and that we should seek to to exploit. But also we should be aware of the problems that Arnavaz raised. As you mentioned in the interview, actually, it, it ties in our food security a lot with energy security. And I think some of the problems that that can cause have been exposed in the last year when a lot of these big vertical farming companies have gone out of business with fluctuating energy prices. And we need to think about all the resources and materials that are going to go into the construction of those vertical farms as well. Yeah, it's so complicated. There's so much to unpack. What did you think about it? Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I think there was one little discrepancy in the conversation, which is that at the beginning, Anava said that we need to disrupt agriculture, that we can't simply transform the current conventional model we need a whole new model but later in the conversation we said that vertical farming won't displace current jobs or cause any discomfort in the form of unemployment and i think disruption 
by its nature will cause discomfort because for a shift to happen, we're going to have to move away from the old destructive forms of agriculture. We touched on this ideal new form of agriculture without the pathway of how we're going to get there, especially on the scale that that Arnavaz mentioned that we need to produce more food in the next 40 years than we have in the past 8,000, which is massive. A statistic I've never heard before. I don't know. Have you? No, that's crazy. Yeah. And we talked about this patchwork that you mentioned that there are a variety of farming methods out there to meet the needs of a growing population. It's not conventional farming or vertical farming. It's conventional farming or this whole patchwork of new forms of technology, new forms of permaculture and agriculture. So this is not just a farming revolution, it's a bit of a thought revolution as well to try and get people to think differently about how they visualise agriculture and what it could be rather than what it currently is. Definitely, I think this is going to be the huge challenge. I think overall what we need to do, the way that I see the, the shift that we need to make in the overall food system I see there as being three key components to it. The first of those is increasing the intensity of food production. One of the most important things that that we can do as we continue to feed a growing population is to continue to increase the amount of food we're able to produce on the same piece of land. Because if we don't do that, the only way that we're going to be able to meet that food increase is through encroaching more on natural habitats, and that will only drive the destruction of nature. Historically, increasing the productivity of agriculture has spared more than a billion hectares of land since 1980. That's a crazy amount. I think it's more than the whole area of the United States of America. It's insane. The second thing is that we need to decrease the impact that that intensification has on the planet. With fertilizer use, you get eutrophication where Nutrients leak into lakes and rivers and wrecks ecosystems. Pesticides, of course, that cause insect populations to plummet, and especially the pollinators that farming relies so heavily on. Erosion of soil, so much more. So we need to think about how we can continue to increase yields without all of the environmental impacts that are generally associated with that. That's going to require a lot of innovation. And finally, we need to decrease the demand for food production. And that's through recognizing that we need to shift towards a more plant-based diet in the world that will shed the extraordinary inefficiency of meat production and will mean that we need a lot less land to produce our food. But it's also recognizing things like the fact that actually we're already producing more than enough food around the world to feed absolutely everybody, to feed a population, in fact, of about 10 billion people. It's just that a third of it is wasted around the world. So we need to address food waste, not only at the consumer side, but also all of the structural reasons that underlie that food waste. Things like the politics of food prices and international trade and all these things that I don't really understand very well. (laughs) That's something I wish we'd had the opportunity to dive a little bit more into in this episode, but something that I want to read up more about afterwards. I think so much of what you mentioned is based on the fact that we need to transform financial mechanisms and that involves companies, governments redirecting their money and what they subsidise. When I was in France in 2019 and lots of the farmers there working on intensive farming, they were farming rabbits, which is a much bigger market in France than it is anywhere else in Europe. They were farming rabbits and lots of these farmers 
were committed to this intensive form of farming because they were being subsidized. So lots of the individuals who are working in these unsustainable areas aren't working there because they're passionate about what they're doing. It's because that's where the flow of money is going. They're doing what they can to feed their families. And that way of farming is what's being subsidized. And they felt like they weren't living aligned with their values and they knew what they were doing was wrong, but they had no way to change. They're trapped. And I think this comes back to what what Carlos Manuel Rodriguez was talking about last week, which is about how it's all about the incentives and it's about rewarding farmers and landowners for doing the right things rather than the wrong things. And in the UK, that's hopefully what we're starting to do now. We've moved away from the common agricultural policy, an EU scheme that gave out payments to farmers, largely based on the amount of land that they owned, moving towards environmental land management schemes that are starting to reward farmers for environmental stewardship. And if we can get those right forms of government support in place all around the world that start to incentivize farmers to introduce more sustainable practices that are better for nature, but that don't impact productivity and yield, then that's how we can start to have this just transition. We want people to go away and be able to act based on this conversation. So what would you say you would recommend people do based on what Arnavaz told us and where the agriculture sector needs to move to? So I think one of the things that people at home can do to help as always is pushing for good policies and good governance that do this, that contribute towards shifting towards a more sustainable food system. And I think a really key component of doing that is educating yourself and other people about what that looks like. Because as we discovered in this episode, it's not as simple as organic farming or what people tend to think. It's actually much more complicated than that and involves a very nuanced series of solutions that are very context dependent. And then alongside that, join an organization that's already working on pushing for that change. And there are so many fantastic organizations that are already working on shifting to better food systems, the likes of Greenpeace, Oxfam, WWF, as well as a lot of smaller charities like the Nature Friendly Farming Network here in the UK. There's so many people working on this. So have a look at some of them and and see what you can do to help them out. Yeah, I think we've been talking about this at such a broad level, but something which we haven't discussed is how people can work on a local level because that's often where change happens not with the individual but when many individuals come together and work in their communities so people can join or start community gardens that promote sustainable local farming cut food waste in their organizations or companies and if they have a canteen work on shifting the food provided there towards a more sustainable range so i think as much as we need this big revolutionary transformation within agriculture it's about making sure people keep themselves within that story rather than just demanding change also being part of it absolutely all right i think that's about all that we have time for just want to say thank you again so much to everyone for joining us on this episode we hope you've enjoyed it and if you have there are several ways that you could really help us out as a podcast the first of those is if you're an apple podcast if you leave us a review that really helps push our podcast up the rankings more people can find it and then they can hear about all of these fantastic solutions that we're showing. If you're on Spotify, I don't think you can do that, but you can leave us a rating, a five-star rating. And if you'd like to support us even further, you can tip us the equivalent of a coffee 
on ko-fi.com. Neither Bella nor I were paid to make this and spent a lot of our spare time putting it together alongside our degrees. So if you can and would like to, we'd really appreciate that. We've got links to all of this and more, including our social media, all in the show notes. And next time on the show, we're going to wade into what has been described as the third major environmental crisis of our time, which is the plastic pollution crisis. And to explore that topic, we're going to meet an inventor who is one of the youngest guests so far, still at university, but has had a transformative idea about how we as a species can clean microplastics from our water. So tune into next week's episode to hear all about that. Bye. See you next time. Bye.